I have some very good news. It's worth turning on the mic for. <laughs> we all tested negative for COVID-19. <laughs> so may we all be safe and protected. And we can feel that safety now. Also, another piece of good news. Today is Indigenous Peoples Day. And so in honor of this day, and also in honor of Johnny V, I'm going to chant and begin this talk tonight by an invitation to the devas. Traditionally in Asia, in the monasteries, they sing this as a literal invitation to all the celestial beings, the gods and goddesses and all the beings, the devas in these realms, who come, who love the Dharma, and they come to listen. And there are all these seen and unseen beings that gather, gather, gather. And even in the suttas, we hear stories of all the devas who would come and listen. So if all that is way too religious for you, <laughs> then you can see this as an invocation to the ancestors, or also just a simple nod to the sense that we're not alone here. You know, we never practice alone. And asking for help, asking for support, and feeling a sense of participating in something bigger and maybe even mysterious, more than we can know, is often a deep uh, sense of solace and refuge as we sit and walk hour by hour just knowing you can ask for help. So this is the invitation to the devas. Haritawanametang Sametabaranta Awikita chita paritang manantu Samanta chakawalesu Atragachantu devata Sadamang munirajasa Dunantu sagamo karang Sage kame charupe Giri sikarata te chantali ke wimane Diperate chagame Taruana gahane gehawatum hikete. Bumachayan tu dewa. Jalatala wisame Titanta santikeyang. Muniwara wachanang 
Sarawo me sunantu Udada sanakalo ayam baranta Damasawana kalo ayam baranta Sangha parirupasana kalo ayam baranta So I was very young when I met the Dharma. I was in college. And my first teachers had done a lot of long solitary retreat. And I heard stories. And right away at the age of 19, I was like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do long retreat. And it did not fit in my life. I had to graduate from school, I had to find a job, figure out money, figure out relationships, figuring out what it was like to be a young person in this world. So it was actually quite a lot of suffering and strife and struggle, a couple of more college degrees. And then 10 years later, finally I had gotten all the conditions together to do a long solitary cabin retreat. And this was in 2014. And my two same original teachers came and they kind of put me in retreat, did a ritual. And then they drove away. And I remember sitting in my tiny cabin, again, no, very rustic, very rustic, completely alone, and hearing their truck <laughs> drive down the road. And then silence. And the weight of aloneness set in. And that loneliness did not leave. It did not leave for six months. I was alone, sitting and walking. I had a very rigorous schedule. I was getting up at three in the morning. I had boom, 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 much like you're doing, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, chanting, eating, sitting, walking, very rigorous all through the late night. And I had made a promise, a commitment not to see anybody. I was carrying my own water and had set up all these people to shop for me. Groceries were coming up. And I had fear and loneliness and a sense of defeat most moments of every day. I remember sitting at, at some point, two weeks in, I was really hitting some hard spots. And I thought, I can't stay. can't stay with this. It's not healthy for me. And so I called Eugene. <laughs> and at that point, I hadn't set up any teacher support. And I said to him, didn't really know him that well, actually. And I said, would you be willing to talk to me every couple months? I'm here for six months. And he said, yeah, yeah, OK, but let's talk every week. <laughs> Good teacher. So I'd call him on Wednesdays. But even so, I had bad reception. 
And that moment, you know, that half hour would come and go, and then I would be alone again. And at some point in that first month, uh, sitting and struggling and struggling, and I thought, okay, I've made this commitment to stay in this cabin. And the way I'm going to stay, it felt like I was kind of planting my hoe in the earth. Like, I'm going to stay, but I can't do this schedule. So I ditched the schedule. And then every day, I had this feeling of failure. I remember eating my breakfast, and all this Zen language was coming, like one continuous mistake, and this is a great failure. And over time, it was like, all right, this is a great big six-month failure. So at that point, I set up my hammock in the meadow behind the cabin, and I spent all afternoon every day in my hammock, just watching the trees, feeling like a failure, and I kept, you know, the impermanence, you've heard about this. I kept looking, like, when is this going to end? And inevitably, I tell you, loneliness, fear, defeat, struggle, up until the very last morning. It was so awful. And I thought, oh, well, big failure. And then I came out of retreat. And it was like the whole world had changed. Couldn't even describe what it was. I was different. The world is different, and I also felt like I could do anything. <laughs> if I could do that, I could do anything after that. Nothing was going to stop me. <laughs> and this is a lot of what we're doing here, isn't it? You know, I really want to talk about this, the suffering that we are all in, right? We've seen it, seen it, suffering in the room, and also the end of suffering. Because isn't it mysterious? How do we get from A to B? Have you had these thoughts? Like here I am just showing up and struggling and face to face with all this neurosis. And somehow it's like something's happening, even if we don't quite know what it is. Yeah, dukkha. So dukkha is the Pali word for suffering, unreliability, the sense of not knowing, of struggle. But there's this formula that my good friend and teaching partner has, has offered for this talk, actually. Um, that suffering, just what we're all in together, plus faith, or sadha in Pali, the sense of trust and confidence in the path, this equals samvega. Dukkha plus sadha equals samvega. Suffering plus trust equals samvega, which is one of these Pali words that's really hard to translate. So often we hear samvega as spiritual urgency. This sense of, I've just got to get out of here, right? We see the suffering and we just have this sense of like, there has got to be another way. There's got to be another way. This took birth in the Buddha. Very famously, we hear these stories about the prince Siddhartha, who was so protected, you know, in the palace. He had every comfort. And surprisingly, even as a young man, he didn't really know about the suffering of the world. And so eventually, in his late 20s, he broke out of the palace, he snuck out, and he saw the four heavenly messengers. He saw somebody who was sick, somebody who was aging, getting old, 
He saw a corpse, dead person, and he saw a spiritual aspirant, a renunciate, a monk. And just in that moment, some vega for him. You know, just this sense of oppressive shock and dismay at the suffering of this world, sickness, aging, death, and realizing this is true for all of us. And a kind of alienation in the way that he'd been protected. Like this is what life is. It's so meaningless the way that I've been living it. And then the sense of, I can't keep doing that, right? The same kind of complacency and comfort, and we just sort of go through our days in this kind of dullness. No, we're going to get sick and get old and get and die, right? The sense of it's foolish to let, to let this life go by in this way. And so this sense of urgency, I've got to make use of my time. There must be a way out. There must be a way out of this meaningless cycle that Matthew so beautifully spoke to last night, the Pali word is samsara, right? This wheel that keeps turning again and again. And so the Dharma, the whole of the Dharma, the Buddha taught this way, we can step off that cycle. Suffering and its end. So have you had a little bit of this this week? Urgency, right? These are the conditions. I've got to make use of them. This is what keeps us up late at night, doing these late night sits and walks, right? Some of you are not eating so much. The sense of, I don't care what it takes. I'm willing to be uncomfortable in order to wake up. And what used to make us happy, we start to see might not work so well. And again, last night, Matthew is speaking about how it's all this perspective. You know, we have this certain kind of sense of what meaning is, what life is about, And then we start practicing and we get a little bit outside our habits, a little uncomfortable, and we start to see there's all these different layers of meaning and something shifts in us. And we have to do something different. Our old habits and strategies, they don't work anymore. So then it's like this this beautiful image of a snake in a bamboo tube. You can't go back (laughs) once you're in at a certain point. We're right in the heart of the retreat. We're in it. There's no going back now. But it's also a long way maybe to the finish. (laughs) So this sense of there's got to be something different, right? And then Eugene pretty much told us that there's something different. This beautiful quote from Dogen that the way of the Buddha is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to awaken with all things. And this awaken continues, this awakening, this no trace continues endlessly. What does that mean? But there's something beautiful in it, right? Don't you want to figure it out? And then Tuari, who's constantly beautifully reminding us, stay in the body. There's all these stories that we're spinning and all the thoughts trying to figure out, but the body is where we get free. Right here in this body, in this fathom long body. Stay here. And Hakim's beautiful transmission of how we do that, how we stay with the body 
and the breath, and we can harness that kind of energy in ways we might not even need known were possible. And so we're all still here on day five. And I would say that what keeps you in the body, harnessing these energies, that it is your own version of spiritual urgency. There's something here. And even we don't understand it. We don't have to understand it. We can't in some way. So related, I'm going to talk a little bit about desire. There's a lot of desire in Samvega, in spiritual urgency. But we hear a lot about how desire is bad, right? Sensory desire is the first nivarana, the hindrance. And then it's all about letting go, right? The whole path is letting go, letting go, letting go. And this has come up in group about, but what about the beauty here? And what about enjoyment? Is that bad? Like pleasant Vedana? So in the Buddhist teachings, there's a very important place for desire. And it's called Dhamma Chanda. So Dhamma, and then Chanda is healthy desire. Healthy desire for the Dhamma. And we need this. It's what creates our urgency. Don't we all just want to be free? It's like the most basic thing in life. Matthew was saying, you know, sure, there's ignorance and there's all these hindrances, but fear at its root, right, is driving so much of our experience, this, this fragile and delicate human body that just wants to be safe. We just want to be safe and protected and healthy and okay. And that desire is, is good, in, in some ways, it's the essence of metta, isn't it? May I be happy? May I be safe? May I be free from suffering? That's the most basic truth in life. And so we don't get rid of that. That's what leads us on the path. And we, we learn to recognize it as we go, that maybe enjoying the birds and the trees and the beauty here that keeps us walking on the path, that's onward leading, that's Dhamma, that's truth. And it's only when we get a little bit tight and contracted about all those beauties that they're a problem, that they're an obstacle. So wanting to be free isn't the problem. Often it's that we look for it in the wrong place. Maybe we go the other direction. So we think that happiness is to be found in tightening down. I just cling a little harder and control my situation and navigate, engineer my enlightenment. That's, I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to do this practice right. Be a good yogi. So we double down. And what we're doing here more and more, paradoxically, is learning that happiness is found in loosening up and letting go of the whole enlightenment project and just being here simply. Very simple. So simple, it's so difficult. And so for some, we're learning to let go through a kind of renunciation. And there's all these opportunities here to renounce sleep and food and comfort. But for others, it's a deep sense of self-care. I'm actually going to eat really plenty of food this week because in my daily life, my habit is always to kind of cut, you know, short, tight, 
control. And to get plenty of sleep, and that is my practice. That's onward leading. So that's why it's so hard to teach, is because we each have a very different formula for what's going to be onward leading, what leads us to freedom, what's our version of letting go. So we soften and we ride that edge. Thich Nhat Hanh was such a master of this. Eugene spoke about him in the afternoon. He says this. He says, awakening means to see the truth, that you want to know how to enjoy this life, how to live deeply in a very simple way. You don't want to waste your time anymore. Cherish the time that you're given. And often it's a very subtle discernment, this right effort or wise effort that the Buddha spoke to. It's an important part of the Eightfold Path. And it's the whole of the path in some way. We're constantly asking this question. We're calibrating how much effort do I put in? Do I try harder? Do I do less? And the Buddha spoke beautifully to this. He, he, there's a story in the suttas, one of my favorites, about a monk named Sona. So Sono, before he became a monk, was a musician. There's a lot of musicians in the Dharma. So he was a lute player, and then he renounced, and he took on the robes, and he took up the holy life, and he had Samvega, this monk. He was so driven to, to practice, to wake up. He was doing walking meditation through the day, through the night, walking back and forth, so diligent so diligent. And the Buddha comes upon him and he's been walking so much, his feet are bleeding. And he says, Buddha, Buddha, this isn't working. I'm trying so hard, but what, what do I do? And the Buddha, with his huge compassionate heart, he could see the past. He knew that Sona was a musician, so he gave him this metaphor. And he said, the path is like tuning your lute like tuning your musical instrument. And the only way for those strings to make a beautiful sound is if they're not too tight and also not too loose. And the beauty of this story, I did a little bit of research. Back in the day, in the Buddhist time, those strings weren't metal. They weren't plastic. You know, you couldn't just turn a knob and, and tune. They were made of animal intestine and tendon and ropey, you know, very ropey, wiry strings. So it took a lot of effort to tune. You had to really put some elbow grease in, and it was such a fine art because each instrument was different, different size, but also they were, the musical instruments were built for the body of the musician. And so depending on your proportions and your size, each instrument was tuned according to your particular body. And isn't that so apt? Each of us, our wise effort is going to be completely different. So we can't give you a formula. You know, the best we can do is a schedule. And then you have to really follow your inner guide. You're tuning your instrument to your body and your situation moment by moment. This is the art of practice. There's this great story about Ajahn Chah. 
the forest Thai, Thai forest master who's the, the some, one of the head of our lineage here. And so one of his Western students was watching him in, in meetings with students. And one student would come in and he would say, go left, go left. And another student would come in and he'd say, go right, go right. And the Westerner said, Ajahn Chao, what are you doing? You're giving the completely opposite instructions to each person. And Ajahn Chao wisely said, well, that person was veering off this way and that person was veering off this way. So he's giving, you know, very refined, calibrated answers to each person differently. And you've seen this in our time together. We're giving you so many tools. Mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the breath, Vedana, now affect and emotions. And then you've got the heart practices in the afternoon and there's chanting and there's all the postures. So you have all these tools, but have you had that moment of like, okay, do I be with the breath? Do I do metta? Maybe I should stand up. (laughs) What what do I do? What's the best thing? There's got to be the best practice that's going to lead me to freedom right now. Vedana, Vedana is it. You know, we get into these questions with ourselves. And one of the beauties is that we want all of that so that as we're listening and we're tuning our lute, we're listening to our inner music, we start to learn, oh, there's intuition here. Oh, there's an inner guide that actually knows, that can tell me. For me, I like to frame practice in two different modes. So maybe this is helpful simplifying all of this. So first mode is the receptive mode. Really beautiful talk last night about receptivity and the bowing practice to your little nivaranas. Hello, little neurosis. Hello. Right? We're friendly. We invite them in. We welcome. And then we sit very kindly with them, patiently, gently, very receptive and open. And then the other mode is the active mode. And this sometimes we call the wisdom of no. No, I'm not going to plan my next retreat while I'm on this one. Right? I'm not going to follow these looping thoughts of self-criticism. I'm not going to believe the judgment. So sometimes when we do find our really, ourselves really mired in some of that, there is a clear kind of no that's not aggressive. It's not angry or aversive. It's just a, like a parent telling a child, not now. And that can be very helpful too, very skillful, just no. Often the traditional instruction would be if we're very angry and raging, that if we do metta, it's kind of like replacing the unwholesome with the wholesome, metta as an antidote. And we can do this. We can be active and proactive in working with some of these very difficult mind states. So we have to keep asking, is it time to be receptive? Is it time to be active? What's called for in the moment? Sometimes we're, we're getting into this territory with emotions, and so I'll just offer some. Sometimes you might feel emotions in the body. Sometimes you can break it down into the Vedana, very subtle moments of Vedana. Very simple. Sometimes with emotions, you can take a more psychological approach. You can really name them precisely and then allow, of course, here they are. Hello, 
my shame, you're here. And then you can do some investigation. Well, what's the most painful part of this? What am I believing that's most painful? What part of this is really needing my attention? And then perhaps even seeing the impersonal quality in some of these emotions. Oh, having shame is part of the human experience. Maybe this isn't even my shame. So you can do this active recognizing and active kind of investigating. Sometimes that's enough to free it. Your reasoning does free it. We can get a little bit too cognitive off also. But just a little bit of reflection can be helpful. And I was telling some of you today, especially with doubt, this one is really helpful. This using reasoning to out-reason doubt. Because doubt sounds very logical. Oh, there's got to be a better way I'm wrong, I'm doing it wrong, or I should be walking slower, whatever the narrative is. Reflect. Today is day five. You have been here for five days. Has anything happened? I mean, in some ways nothing has happened, but aren't you different than you were five days ago? So it's working. Something's happening, and you can use that to prove it, right? Even if you feel like you're the worst meditator in the room, something's happening in you. Even contrary to all of your messiness, it's happening anyway. Thich Nhat Hanh, again, he says this about working with emotions. The lack of understanding is the basis for every internal knot or emotion. It's difficult for our mind to accept feelings like anger and fear and regret. So we find ways to bury these, these emotions, in remote areas of our consciousness. We create elaborate defense mechanisms to deny their existence. But these emotions are always trying to resurface. If we practice mindfulness, we can learn the skill of recognizing an emotion, a knot, the moment that it's tied in us. And we, then we find ways to untie it. Internal formations or emotions need our full attention as soon as they form, while they're still loosely tied, so that the work of untying them will be easy. So a story about this. Again, something must have happened in that long six-month retreat because here I am doing 12 months, and we're just almost at the end, going back for two more months here. Same cabin, same land. A little bit easier because I have my partner there, even though we've made this commitment to be in silence and have our own space. And so last November we started and we were very strict you're in silence, and we were, had a lot of samvega. You know, there's a sense of, here's this opportunity. We have this time. Let's do it. Let's actually do it. Conditions are going to change, we know. So let's really make use. So both of us really driving, not a lot of sleep, not a lot of food, really having beautiful practice experience too, doing a lot of what you're doing here, sitting and walking in silence. So in February... I thought I was doing great. I was building concentration. I had this sense of samadhi. I was having insights. Things were opening. 
and completely out of the blue, went to sleep, went to go to bed. And instead of sleeping, electricity started coursing through my body, like heart bursting out of its skin, these crazy palpitations, and then there'd be these long periods between heartbeats. And then I would have these shaking experiences in my body. It just felt like somebody had plugged me into the light socket. And it was a very dark night, cold. And I was just, it was interesting because my mind had a lot of stillness and steadiness, but the body felt like it was dying. And I kind of knew logically I'm probably not dying, but I had never had panic in this form before. And it was, it was really that. It was panic to a, a huge degree, this heart crazy. And it would come in waves. So I knew I did all the things that I know to do. I did slow walking. I did compassion. I chanted some, you know, sitting, lying, standing, walking. So hour by hour, I'm going through this. It was getting later at night. Nothing I did changed. It's still doing this thing and, you know, electricity and shaking and Again, my mind was pretty steady, and I thought, at a moment of calm, and I thought, I can do this. I can totally get through this. I'm going to be okay. You know, kind of muscle through. Like, I've, I've been through this. I can do it, even though this is the most intense panic attack I've ever had. And right following that moment of calm, I thought, I'm actually going to choose compassion instead. Such a moment, it felt like a surrender, and I thought, I'm going to go get Nico. I'm going to go get him. Even though we had these very strict commitments, I thought, and I could muscle through, no, I'm going to choose compassion. So I went out, crunching through the dark snow. I woke him up. He came back to the cabin with me, and he put his hand on my body, and together we could feel, he could feel the electricity and the shaking. And just through the night, we sat and we felt it together. And there was something so, there was such a deep lesson about accompaniment for me. That, okay, it's still going, panic is still happening, but I don't have to be with it alone. And I could, yeah, put aside my yogi pride and go ask for help. And just having two witnessing the intensity of it made all the difference. So a big turning point in my practice around listening to my inner guide, listening to that teacher that said, sure, you can do it, but we're going to choose compassion right now. So we've been talking a bit about the Satipatthana Sutta. And the last part I want to name is this four foundations of, of mindfulness, this foundational sutta in our tradition has all these aspects in it. So there's this famous refrain in the Satipatthana that's repeated 13 times. So probably important. The Buddha just kept repeating it. It has the Dhammachanda in it. It has this ardency. So he says here, in regard to the body, one abides contemplating the body ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful. And this word, ardency, in Pali, it's atapi. That's the samvega. That's the love of the practice. This, it's actually, it's passion, ardency, ardor. 
love, heat, desire. We need that. We need that to keep us going continuously. It helps us balance and sustain our energy to keep it going. And it helps us keep this light flow, right? If we have ardency where it's like we're in love with each moment, we want to know what's happening. So it keeps us awake. We have this ardency. Skill, it's a skillful use of desire, and it's right there in the Satipatthana Sutta. So much heat and beauty and even passion in this practice. We're not getting rid of that. So a story about ardency. After college, I got to go on pilgrimage. So those are these same teachers, and we were in India and Nepal, and going to all these holy places. My favorite was Bodh Gaya. So there's this beautiful Mahabodhi stupa that is built where the Buddha put his hand on the earth and was awakened under this famous Bodhi tree that they say is still living. It's the fourth generation of the same tree. It's huge and it's beautiful and it's spreading out of this garden surrounding. And in these gardens are beautiful, smooth wooden boards for prostrations. And at all hours, in the early, early morning, in the late at night, you can go and see yogis and yoginis bowing, full body prostrations to the Bodhi tree. So beautiful. And so at 22, I would wake up early in the morning and you can hear the chanting, some of the chanting we've been doing, you can hear it echoing through the refuges and the precepts and you go and there's kind of a stream of pilgrims going to the tree. And then you find your prostration board and this, this it's so physical, this movement of bowing and sort of laying your body on the, or on the earth, you know, a sense of surrendering, of returning your life. And then it, I mean, for me, it's like this tree feels full of devas and blessings. This tree is blessing all of these bowing people. And at some point at six in the morning, the Tibetans come through with butter, tea, and bread. You have breakfast for a little, take a break. And then everybody keeps bowing. So beautiful. I think that was my first taste of this kind of ardency, of just deeply following in love and of participating in something bigger. And knowing is so profound, stretching back generations of people who made those boards so smooth with their bowing. And that bigger kind of love, it's a sense of belonging, really. Laying your body on the earth. Suzuki Roshi says, when you do something, you should burn yourself completely, like a good bonfire, leaving no trace of yourself. And that's what we're doing here. Maybe you didn't know that's what you were signing up for. (laughs) But we're here to wake up. And it takes a tremendous amount of effort to wake up. Doesn't it? It's a lot. It takes fire. It takes commitment and diligence and this determination. I can do it. You need faith. You need trust. You need all this atapi, and at the same time, it's surrender, right? It's returning your life. It's letting go. It's giving up. One continuous mistake. Being willing to fail again and again and again. 
beautiful story of the Buddha in his ascetic years. He was starving himself and working way too hard. And then at some point, this beautiful woman came and offered him milk rice for nourishment. We need that too. We need those moments of receptivity, of eating, of taking nourishment. And then what does all this ardency and heat lead to? What is it leading us to? So again, in the Satipatthana, here, in regard to the body, one abides contemplating the body, ardent, clearly knowing, and continuously mindful. So clear knowing, clear understanding, that's what we're getting to. That other kind of meaning that Matthew referred to, it's like unexpected and not like what we thought things were. That this clear knowing can be simply a skillful response. What the Zen folks say is an appropriate response. Every moment, right? Calibrating, tuning your lute, and knowing what's the right thing to do. In daily life, we need this. When do I speak up? When do I stay quiet? How am I in relationship? What's the onward leading, clear understanding of what's, what's good, what leads to goodness? This is that what we're cultivating here. It's very practical, actually. On the ground, knowing what to do. I wanted to add this piece to my story about the yogi who fell down in retreat. Because that was a moment of real, I felt this spark of compassion and, you know, that sense of what can I do to help. And there was even a forward movement of like, I want to help, I want to, you know, help him. And at the same time, this voice inside, I sort of watched and he was getting up on his own and I don't think he knew anyone was watching him. And this inner voice, this clear knowing said, no, no. Sort of let him have his practice. And my practice is to just do compassion, to say that phrase. Unexpected, because I thought, oh, I should go help. But that's the inner knowing that we're cultivating, often unexpected, the inner teacher. And over time, this inner teacher starts to see reality. It starts to see how things really are. It's surprising. And you'll hear a little bit more about these three characteristics later, but we talk a lot about impermanence. We start to see that in every moment. And we see the imperfection of things, the dukkha in samsara. And we see the impersonal quality of it all. It's all just passing by without a lot of me and mine in there. So this non-delusion, this clear understanding of things as they are, we study the self and we forget the self and then we wake up with all things. Sokni Rinpoche, my Tibetan teacher, calls it carefree dignity. And Thich Nhat Hanh calls it the Dharmakaya. He said in Mahayana, this means the essence of all that exists. All phenomena, the song of a bird, the warm rays of the sun, a cup of hot tea, All are manifestations of the Dharmakaya. We too are of the same nature as these wonders of the universe. I 
And so with all this ardency and urgency and love of the practice, we're invited to see these truths that change everything. We have to keep a lot of heart and a lot of humor in it all. We need those. We start to rely on our inner guide that knows our motivation, that's purifying. That's another word for purification is genuineness. We're becoming more genuine. And in that, we know what would help in this moment, and then we act accordingly. And we start to see that our mind is like the sky. Reality is like the sky, and all of this passing thoughts and feelings and emotions and sensations, they're just the clouds. And actually, when we look really close, we see those clouds are made of sky. (laughs) (laughs) And so we can sit quietly together for a moment or two. All phenomena, the song of a bird, the warm rays of the sun, a cup of hot tea, all are manifestations of the Dharmakaya. We too are of the same nature as these wonders of the universe.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.